Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay, and I'm really excited for today's show. Uh, my guest today is someone whose work I used to admire from afar, and now I get the pleasure of working with him every day, part of the Fansided NBA division. Ian Levy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I am. Uh, I'm excited about today's show, not just because we get to talk about Suns, but also because we get to talk about a show that Ian actually put me on to uh, called The Expanse on Amazon. And if you haven't seen it, it's it just wrapped up season five last night, actually. So we're trying to be timely about this. But uh, let's go ahead and jump right in. The Suns are coming off a three game road trip. They beat the Mavs twice one of which had a Devin Booker game-winning three in his first game back. And then they kind of followed that up with a very disappointing loss to the Pelicans, got blown out on the road, um, and that dropped them to 11-9 and nine on the season. And the middle of the West right now is, it's crazy because the Suns are like one game out of third, or I'm sorry, fourth in the West, and they're like two games ahead of 12th. So those, those spots for like four through 12 are just dead neck right now. Ian, as someone who, you know, is responsible for covering the whole league, what have you seen from the Suns thus far? And where do you see them kind of stacking up in the West to this point? Yeah, I mean, they've been an interesting team. I think, um, you know, it, I think it's kind of like working through inconsistency and figuring out those new pieces, um, you know, that they brought in. Um, Chris Paul, uh, you know, is obviously a, a huge piece. And um, I think every, you know, uh, every supposed positive that, you know, we were looking at before the season, I think that still probably holds true. Um you know, I think there's no reason to, to think that he's not uh, raising the ceiling on this team by the end of the season. But, um, you know, it's it's an adjustment and it's a learning process for Aiton and Booker. Um, you know, probably Booker more than Aiton. He's, you know, having to sort of share the ball and share creation responsibilities, um, you know, sort of doing doing more off the ball and in a different kind of, of setting that he has uh, the past couple of years, where Aiton is kind of more just blatantly benefiting from Paul. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's just kind of figuring it out and, and getting everybody comfortable with each other. And, um, you know, it's been such a weird season in, in every other way for every other team. Um, you know, even for the teams who, who haven't like lost seven guys to contract tracing for, for two and a half weeks and had to have their regame scheduled. Um, you know, everybody's, you know, sort of matching up against teams that are missing people. Um, people are popping in and out of the lineups. It seems like everybody is having a hard time sort of finding their rhythm, not just the Suns. Um, and, and I think probably for the Suns, that rhythm is is maybe more important than some of the other teams, both by virtue of, of how many of their, you know, their best players are young. Um, and then, you know, how much of their optimism this season was kind of driven by the the bubble performance last year and, and how, how much sort of rhythm uh, played a part of that. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting team to try to manage expectations for because 
that bubble run really changed things. It kind of opened the door to the Chris Paul trade even being possible. It definitely opened the door to a guy like Jay Crowder, even considering the Suns in free agency. He had like 10 offers in free agency, he said. Um, you know, obviously, if you throw 30 million at a guy, that helps make it easier. But um, yeah, the Suns are currently six in the West. They've got the sixth best point differential in the West. And it's interesting because they haven't really played all that well in crunch time situations. I mean, you you think about like the floater that Chris Paul hit over Jokic in their win over the Nuggets early in the season. You think about Booker's game winner, but they really haven't been that good in the fourth quarter yet, which is surprising for a team that has guys like Chris Paul and Devin Booker, you know, certified closers on the roster. Um, but like you said, it, it's interesting because they've been trying to work in these new guys They've been trying to get these younger guys acclimated to playing consistent basketball, which is what it takes to make the playoffs and is a whole new experience for this group. Um, so I'm curious, you know, it's we're only 21, 20 games in for the Suns at this point, about 30% of the season. But if you had to predict now, where do you see the Suns winding up in that lay of the land out West? I'm going to guess they settle in at either five or six, kind of about where they are now. Um, obviously, like, who knows? It's so weird. You know, things could change at the drop of a hat if, if somebody's injured or, um, you know, somebody has to miss two weeks for contact tracing or whatever. But I think, um, you know, I, I think the Clippers and the Lakers are, are kind of the class of the West. Utah's playing great. It, it seems like Nikola Jokic is, is uh you know, maybe chasing an MVP uh, trophy. I think Denver's probably a, a step ahead, but uh, I think Phoenix is probably the best of that next tier of, of Western Conference teams. Yeah, I, th I think so. And it's an interesting case for them because I feel like if they do hit their, their ceiling, they could be a threat to win a playoff series depending on that first round matchup and, and where they wind up in mm -hmm. the standings. But uh, let's move on to our quote of the week because this is kind of at the crux of what, will either make make or break the Suns come playoff time and, and with their playoff positioning. Um, Devin Booker, after the win against the Mavs, was, talked, was asked about his relationship with Chris Paul and how that chemistry is developing. And this is what he had to say. Um, like you said, you know, iron sharpens iron. You know, we, we both hold each other accountable. Um, we both have that similar approach where we, we want to win at all costs. Um, we're not worried about hurting anybody's feelings, you know, on our team or the other team. You know, we're going out there to win basketball games and, and whatever it takes to do that. And, you know, I'm learning from him every day. You know, he's been in every situation, you know, that I want to get to. Um, you know, so I, I have the cheat code of being alongside of him, his backcourt mate. Um, you know, from on the court to off the court, just everything he does, you know, I'm, I'm a sponge to it. So the one thing that stands out for me there is the whole idea of iron sharpening iron, like he says, and, you know, he's not, <laughs> Booker is not very specific in this clip, as we kind of talked about before when I first sent it to you, but um, it is interesting that a guy like Devin Booker is, is coming in and saying that he wants to be a sponge for someone like Chris Paul, who is the best teammate he's ever had by far and someone who can actually take him to the playoffs did what, what stood out to you about that little clip there I think like you said the fact that it's sort of vague platitudes and cliches <laughs> it, you know um I think like for us as outsiders watching Chris Paul 
you can imagine the kinds of things that you would expect a young player to pick up from him. Things like intensity, things like attention to detail, um, you know, things like how you're, you know, not being friendly with opponents, you know, sort of taking everything seriously, uh, you know, treating every minute like it's last, things like that. Um, but that stuff is kind of obvious. And I suppose, you know, you're learning from example, but like it, it would be really interesting to find out really specifically what kinds of nitty gritty things he's learning from Chris Paul, things about, you know, footwork or, you know, setting up, uh, you know, setting up your defender to, to, you know, hit a screen in a certain way, like those kinds of little nuanced details, we'll probably never hear about them. But I think that's the stuff that's far more interesting. Um, especially because like, like you look at Devin Booker for the last couple of years and the, the obvious things that we would expect him to learn from Chris Paul are things that, you know, he sort of obviously needed you know like mm -hmm. maybe he didn't have that killer intensity maybe he didn't you know uh compete every possession on defense as hard as he could um you know maybe he was a little too whatever lackadaisical about this or that and so um yeah it's it's those things are obvious and we assume he's learning them from watching chris paul but like you know I could learn those from watching Chris Paul, you know, like if, if I kept Chris Paul in mind when I, every day at work, you know, I'd, I'd go after things a little bit differently. So I, I think the, the more interesting question is, is the stuff that we probably won't ever hear about, but those are the things that I would assume will sort of make a bigger difference for, for Devin Booker in the long run. As far as the Booker CP3 thing is concerned, it, it feels like you look at their splits on the court, off the court, and it's pretty obvious that staggering them has been successful and their minutes together have not been the, that way. Uh, obviously in a playoff game, you're going to need those two to have that chemistry tuned in and you're going to need them to be able to play together. You can't stagger them down the stretch of a close playoff game if they make it that far. But I I'm curious what you've seen from them and whether the Suns ought to consider you know, veering more towards what the Houston Rockets did when they had Chris Paul and James Harden as far as staggering them a little bit more? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that the question, I guess, is like how, how you see Paul at this stage of his career and, um, you know, whether you still see him like the Chris Paul that he was with the Houston Rockets a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I, I imagine that there might be an incentive to, to avoid staggering them, you know, quite as much as the, you know, just a numbers perspective would imply because you're trying to, to um, you're trying to keep Chris Paul a little bit fresher, uh, you know, for the playoffs. You're trying not to um, wear, you know, wear him down too much. You know, you don't necessarily want him uh, carrying that, you know, single creation load um you know by himself without booker and i actually i haven't looked i've looked at a few of the splits i've not looked to see how many of chris paul's minutes without booker have come with ayton but i would imagine whenever they're staggering that that would be really important that you would want another sort of primary offensive fulcrum with chris paul whenever possible because you don't want to have you don't want him to have to sort of go iso and create everything as much as possible but um yeah, it does seem like an issue that they're, you know, they're two primary lineups, um, you know, 
Paul Crowder, Booker, Bridges, and Aiton, uh, and then swapping Crowder in for for Cam John, or, or sorry, swapping Cam Johnson in for for Jay Crowder have both been really terrible. Have been outscored by big margins, and especially on defense, have have really struggled. Um, so yeah, I mean, staggering's probably a, a, an advantage maybe for the regular season, but I, I don't know how much they uh, are prioritizing the regular season at this point. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword because it's one of those things where if they were focused just on winning games and not kind of, you know, ironing out those kinks and and getting everyone on the same page, they could probably be winning more games. Um, But like you mentioned, the Suns' first starting lineup with Crowder in there was just really bad. Like they were getting off to horrible starts and, and they were playing way too slow is part of the problem. So that was Monty's thinking, putting Cam Johnson in is that he's a He's more of an established three-point shooter. He cuts a lot. He plays at a faster pace, so they wanted to play a little bit quicker and then put Crowder with the second unit, but that change hasn't gone very well either. Like Crowder's been in a shooting slump since he's been in the starting lineup. Um, I'm sorry, Cam has been in a shooting slump, and Crowder hasn't played well off the bench either. So it's kind of a, it's a rough thing where I think they need to go back to that first starting lineup because that's the lineup that they need to start if they make it to the playoffs mm-hmm. um, and just kind of bear, you know, grin and bear it and get through it um, and hopefully play at a faster pace. Cause to this point, the sun's bench has been kind of their saving grace. Like guys like campaign have been incredible. He's been out recently. Dario Saric has also been out, which has kind of hurt them, but you know, guys like, Frank Kaminsky, Javon Carter, uh, Langston Galloway has been a flamethrower off the bench <laughs> in his limited minutes. Um, so it's it's one of those things where you look at the splits between Booker and, and CP3 and, you know, in 382 minutes together, they're a, in total, they've been outscored by 46 points. In 219 minutes with Book and no Chris Paul, they're plus 63 and in 228 minutes with Paul and no book, they're plus 49. So it, it's kind of interesting, the disparity there. And it's something that the Suns definitely want to fix moving forward. They're only 20 games into one of the most unique NBA seasons we've ever had, just because of how short the off season was. Um, and with a team like this, you would have wanted a regular off season, regular training camp, like those voluntary workouts that guys show up for ahead of time in the summer to try to get to know each other. None of that was a thing. So it'll it'll be interesting. And the sample size, like you said, is still small enough that there's Mm -hmm. probably some fluky stuff in there. Like Chris Paul's shooting 33% on three pointers. Devin Booker's under his career average too you know, a, a little bit of progression to the mean uh, over the next 20 games. And, and maybe those, those lineups with Booker and, and Chris Paul together don't look quite so, so bad. Yeah. I mean, the Suns have missed a lot of threes too. Like they have a lot of guys that are known as three point shooters. And I think at this point, Booker is not going to be the three point, you know, spot up Clay Thompson type guy that he was pegged to be coming into yeah. the draft. Um, cause his three point numbers by and large have just not been good except for like one season of his career. Um, which is weird cause he's constantly hailed as this like elite three point shooter in practice and whatever. It's just not transferring for whatever reason, but you know, Cam Johnson, Mikhail Bridges has really regressed over the last couple of games after starting off really hot from three. Um, Jay Crowder is always kind of a streaky guy. Chris Paul hasn't shot the ball particularly well from deep. So it's one of those things where I, I feel like there's some progression to the mean coming for this team, 
Um, it'd be pretty disappointing if their three-point shooting stayed where it was at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause, Cause that's the thing is they miss a lot of open threes too. Like it's not just three pointers. They've gotten good ball movement. They just miss a lot of open threes. Um, but I, I think that's, that's probably going to do it for Suns talk today. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. Okay. So we are going to talk about a show on Amazon called the expanse, which I'm pretty excited for because I, Ian actually turned me onto this show and I realized that it was like halfway through season five. And so I binged all four seasons like, <laughs> to catch up so I could finish in real time. And uh, I got it done in like a couple of weeks. So I got to watch the last two or three episodes live. Um, for those of you who haven't watched the show, it, it's, kind of, it's like a sci-fi show that's set in the future where the human race has kind of expanded civilizations to Mars and basically the belt is what it's called. So you've got these generations of people that grow up on earth that grow up on Mars. And then the, the, in, the belt, Loda, the ones that grow <laughs> up out in the belt as they call themselves. Um, and they all have like interesting dialects. It's kind of funny. Like the guy from Mars has like a Southern drawl and the people from the belt have this weird, like shorthand language. It's, it's great. But um, it's basically about the kind of conflict between those three, I don't want to call them nations, but you know, these three different civilizations and it's interlocked with this thing called the proto molecule. That's basically kind of like this, I don't know, it's like alien goo basically, <laughs> but, it's like, <laughs> but it's like this sentient being that has the power to, you know, take over people's bodies and kill them take over entire planets like it's very uh kind of all powerful type deal um but I, i'm just curious what were your general thoughts like first of all how did you get turned on to this show like where did you find it i have some friends who who mentioned it um both the old basketball writers that i um Amin vafa and, and kirk henderson who I, I used to write with at harder paroxysm a million years ago and um we have a slack or we kick around books and, and movies and tv and stuff and um they had i think kirk had recommended the books and then he was really excited when the series was coming out and i've not read any of the books but they're uh I don't know how many novels there are, but my understanding is like the show is going to end after the sixth season. And there are several books beyond that worth of material and, and Amazon mm -hmm. is, is not continuing it. But yeah, uh, Kirk recommended it and I jumped in and I really dug it. I am into sci-fi stuff, but I like that it's um, the, the proto molecule aside, it feels sort of like grounded in science. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's no aliens, there's no like hyperdrive, um, you the know, lightsabers. Yeah, <laughs> part of the reason, like, or part of the reason that the, the, that most of the action is sort of constrained to earth Mars and the, and the asteroid belt in between is that like functionally that's sort of as far as they have the space technology to reach, you know, they, they don't have the technology to, to, to fly to, you know, uh, Neptune or whatever. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of other interesting stuff. Like they talk about how their suits have like uh, magnetic stuff in the, in the, um, in the boots so that when they're walking around in their ships, they're sort of walking normally, even though it's zero gravity. Um, mm. Yeah, just stuff like that that I, I found really appealing. Um, and it's, I have enjoyed it uh, a lot because it feels like a lot of different kinds of shows sort of wrapped up. Like the first 
season and a half or two seasons have has like a, a, a mystery arc to it that feels sort of like a murder mystery. Um, that's really interesting. And then there's also sort of geopolitics stuff wrapped in and sort of bigger issues of, of theology and philosophy. And, and each season, it feels like it's kind of pivoted in, in different ways. There will be storyline arcs that are very sort of action heavy and um, all different kinds of stuff. So yeah, I've, I've loved it. I've loved the characters. You mentioned the accents. It's, <laughs> it's actually one of the most bizarre things about the show. Um, I guess I appreciate that they don't sort of acknowledge it or like try to make a thing out of it. But like, yeah, one of the guys is from Mars and has like a Southern accent. And then there's also a woman who the actress is from Australia and she has like a thick Australian accent and they're yeah. both from Mars and they don't <laughs> talk about why they have completely different accents. And then, yeah, the, the belters seem to have some sort of like Creole New Orleans uh, accent <laughs> mashup and it's, um, yeah, it's strange, but I've there's some great characters, some great storylines, and I think the past two seasons have been my favorite so far. I've really enjoyed, felt like for the first time we've sort of gotten off the ships. We've had some on-planet storylines in the past two seasons. There was a storyline this year in season five on Earth, um, and last year they had sort of traveled to this other planet on this other side of this ring gate. Um, and yeah, I liked, I liked that stuff, sort of seeing the universe get bigger. Um, so yeah, it's a great show. I'd highly recommend it for anybody who's interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, I like that you brought up the fact that like the most interesting part of the show is not necessarily the sci-fi elements. Like, you know, there's the ring, obviously. they've got to have, you know, some sci-fi stuff. Like there's the ring that's basically this big portal into other planets and stuff like that that's built by the people that, built the protomolecule i can't remember but it's <laughs> it's it, that part's kind of confusing but um like you said it is grounded more so in realism instead of you know people using the force and <laughs> stuff like that um because it's, yeah, it's a show it's a show about humans like they, yeah, they happen to be they happen to be in space but like they're humans like even the humans on mars are not martians they are you know descendant of, of descendants of human colonists and so um yeah the, those human dynamics and interactions and you know it's about human relationships and it's about human governments and, and human wars and, and all that kinds of stuff it just happens to be in space yeah i i feel like the show is at its best when it's focused on kind of those political dealings and like tensions between the three societies um let's uh we can probably get more into spoiler-ish territory so for anyone who is listening to this or watching this and wants to watch but hasn't caught up all the way on season five um spoiler alert but what were your general thoughts on the season five finale um obviously there was there were the cliffhangers of whatever built or destroyed the the old society that like made the proto molecule comes on the ship at the very end and like tears up that Martian ship that's going through the ring. And then there's this alien superstructure that like blooms with the proto molecule. <laughs> but like the biggest thing for me in that finale was obviously again, spoiler alert, Alex's death. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, this is the Martian with the Southern drawl if you yeah. haven't seen it. Um, and he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't my favorite character. The draw kind of got to me sometimes, I won't yeah. lie. But he was one of the four main members of the crew. And I don't know if you were aware of this, but the reason that 
they kind of pivoted in that direction was because there were a lot of ugly sexual misconduct allegations lobbed against the actor in real life. And all of this kind of hit the fan after they had already finished production for season five. So I was watching this and I wasn't aware of that information. Uh So I'm watching this and I'm like, really they just killed off like a major character like <laughs> without like he got he died of a stroke in yeah. space and they, to, to be fair they had set up that like some of these maneuvers these high g maneuvers that they perform in the ship could they i think they called it stroke out you could basically yeah. have a stroke and die from it but like this guy was kind of their pilot for the whole season i feel like if anyone was going to be you know, kind of acclimated to that sort of thing. It was him. What What did you think of, of Alex's death and the way that they kind of went into that? Yes, I, I had no idea about the allegations. I have not uh, followed the, the fan community around the show. I'm not in tune to any of that stuff. So I had, had not seen any of that. I had no idea about any of that until earlier this week, a couple of people in the Slack were talking about it. And somebody was saying, well, I hope when Alex dies that Bobby doesn't die too, who's this other character and they were on the same ship. And I was like, well, how do you know Alex is gonna die? And they were like, oh, and then they <laughs> sent me all the, you know, the articles from Deadline with all the, you know, horrific allegations. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, certainly glad all that stuff came out and he's out of the show. Uh, yeah. It seemed like, or I feel like I maybe read somewhere, maybe somebody suggested that that the reason his death was so anticlimactic was like you said, they had finished filming. And so they had to come up with something that they could do like with the existing footage without having any other actors come in or any other scenery. And so the way it's shot in the episode, you sort of hear him, uh, you know, his intercom sort of cuts out and then Bobby's out of the ship and she's calling him and he doesn't answer. And then you see him in the, uh, you know, in the cockpit and there's sort of blood floating out of his nose. And, you know, so there's obviously like they could take a still image and just sort of, you know, CGI the, the blood coming <laughs> out of his nose. And uh, I was not even totally clear how he died. Like when I watched yeah. that scene, I immediately had like Googled, like, how did he die? And then I saw that it was a stroke and they, they do kind of like half explain it in the next scene. But um, yeah, I think that was one of those things where, where their hand was kind of forced and mm-hmm. I'm not sure how they deal with that in the next season in terms of, you know, I, I, my sense is that they've been pretty, is that they've stuck very close to the books and that for the most part, like each season has sort of followed the arc of one of the novels. Um, I know there's a few things like the, uh, at least part of the storyline with Amos on earth this year was like not one of the canon novels. It was part of like a, a separate short story or something like that. Um, but for the most part, they follow the book. So I don't know how they handle, you know, the, the season six storyline without his character. Um, and I also don't know, I don't know if they would have had to adjust the, the storyline of season six anyway to sort of bring the show to a close when the, you know, when the narrative of the books continues on, you know, I didn't know if they'd sort of have to artificially cut some stuff off, but I, I thought it was, it was a great season. And there was a few really amazing scenes in the last episode, the scene where Naomi, who's, who's one of the main crew characters, she has uh, ejected herself from her ship because it's booby trapped. Mm-hmm. And it's, if somebody tries to, and people are coming to save her, if they come, the ship's going to blow up. So she jumps out of the ship. She's in her suit. She's running out of oxygen. She's just kind of loose in space. Um, and she's doing these hand motions that are, are sort of a belter shorthand that are supposed to warn whoever's coming to save her. 
And so you, this shot, you get this real close shot on her face and just sort of her, her glass face mask. And you, you can't really hear anything in the space. It's a vacuum. And then you sort of hear these muffled sounds of her being saved in the background. Um, mm. And it was really cool. She's running out of air. You stop seeing her breath on the face shield. And then the person who has come and saved her reconnects her, her oxygen tanks. And you see her breath start appearing on the face shield again. I just thought that was a really... Visually, I thought it was a really cool scene, the way that was all edited and put together. And then my favorite character on the show is Amos. And I loved this yeah. scene, <laughs> the scene at the end where he's um, talking to Holden about bringing Clarissa, who in an earlier season had been a villain. And now they have reconciled and she's going to join the crew. And he, I just he's so delightful and pleasant when he's sort of being social like that. I just I thought that was a great scene, too. Yeah, I, I really liked the the camera angle of that shot of Naomi in space, like it's like spinning in the background and you could kind of see like, not stars, but you know, stuff in the background, but it's just like her face and like the world's kind of spinning. That was really cool. And uh, it seems, it's going to be interesting to see where they go because in the books, I know that Alex is, he's either still alive or he doesn't die at this mm -hmm. point in the storyline. So it'll be interesting to see where they go from there. It seems like they're kind of poising Clarissa or Peaches, as Amos calls her, <laughs> to kind of take that fourth spot on the crew if it's not going to be Bobby Draper. Um, but yeah, it was a, I, I really enjoyed this season. And I think one of the big things for me, um, you know, it was different because the whole crew was split up for most of the season. Mm -hmm. But they also had, I think, the most compelling villain in the show's history as far as Marco Inaro. So yeah. this is uh, Naomi's ex who basically she had a child with him and the kind of twist early on is that Naomi's son is now working for this bad guy who is basically a terrorist from the belt. He's trying to get these separate factions of, of the belt to come together and rebel. But then he's also got these Martians who have gone rogue on his side. Um, and he basically attacks earth with asteroids that are coated in you know stealth technology from mars like it's it's uh <laughs> kills millions apparently i yeah. don't know why we're laughing but it's it's uh I, I found him you know maybe a little too heavy on the eyeliner but other than that i thought he was a pretty good villain what do you think of marco inaros yeah i thought he was an interesting character um and i thought that uh naomi storyline this season was was certainly much more interesting than than holden's or alex and bobby's um so yeah, I, I liked him as a villain. I think some of the, uh, I think this season we spent more time with Belters than in any previous season. And I will admit that the, the accent stuff wore on me a little bit by the end. Some <laughs> of the scenes on the ship with Marco, uh, you know, everybody on the ship is speaking with that, that, uh, that whatever, that New Orleans uh Oh, and boss man. Yeah. <laughs> that warned me a little bit, but I thought he was, his acting was great. He was a very convincing psychopath. And I thought the, um, you know, the apocalypse storyline, you know, with the asteroids uh, getting thrown at earth was obviously uh, disturbing, but I, uh, I'm one of those people who in this current situation, this pandemic, I have uh, leaned into my consumption of, of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic media, uh, <laughs> watching, you know, movies and the kinds of books I've been reading and stuff. And I really, my favorite storyline of the season by far was 
uh, Amos and Clarissa on Earth, sort of navigating mm-hmm. the aftermath of, of these asteroid impacts and, uh, you know, a society that was falling apart. And I, you know, I would watch a spinoff show of, of that for, <laughs> you know, for season after season. That would be great. Yeah, I'm, I was big on Amos's kind of line, this storyline this season as well. And also, like, I'm, you know, I'm just going to ship that that potential romance i don't know if it happens in the books but we're yeah. rooting for we're rooting for amos and peaches yeah. um the and the the one thing that i didn't mention before we wrap up with the season five talk is i feel like alex's death they did the best job that they could with that and then they kind of contextualized it pretty well um there was that one scene where naomi is reading or there's that audio recording that she had left for holden um, who is her, you know, the main character on the show and her romantic interest, basically in the event of her death. And it kind of tied it all together as far as like, sometimes it's hard to say goodbye to family, but we have to do it. I felt like that was kind of a, it was one of those moments that goes beyond just the show because it's like, Alex was a well-liked character. A yeah. yeah. Alex was a well-liked character, but obviously you have to get rid of him at that point. Yeah. Um, so I like that. And I liked what Amos said um, right before he brings Clarissa on the ship about, you know, if this is in terms of last stands, the last stand I would want to make is with, is, you know, for my family or protecting my family or whatever. Um, so I, I thought they did about as good as you could do given the, the ugly circumstances in real life. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see what they have planned for season six, which is unfortunately going to be the final season of the show and whether they do, kind of a spinoff show after that because of the wealth of material they have outside of that it was interesting now that you are talking about alex's death it was interesting too that they the way they handled that it seemed like they memorialized the character in a way Mm -hmm. that didn't memorialize the actor you Mm -hmm. know like so they had this this problematic actor who they couldn't continue with which meant losing the character and by sort of not by by sort of uh not having him actually appear in some of those meaningful kind of exit scenes, giving the other characters closure or whatever, like you you might, you know, in, in some other show where you're, where you're losing a popular character for a different reason. Um, I thought, yeah, that it's funny because it, it, it honored the character without having to um, highlight the actor or honor the actor in any way. Yeah, absolutely. So very excited to watch the next season whenever it winds up coming out. Um, and very glad that you turned me on to it, actually. <laughs> so oh, I'm glad to spread the word. Yeah. Um, for Beltalodas and Inyalodas alike, that's probably going to do it for today's show. Uh, thank you so much for watching and for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and uh, write me a review with a couple of shows you're watching. Ian, tell the people what you're working on these days and, and where they can find your work. I am at Fansided, talking about the NBA every day, news, analysis, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Yeah, come check us out. Yep. And that's going to do it for today's show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. For this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, this is Gerald Borgay signing off.